maybe stating the obvious, but I think it's fair to say that letter writing in the 21st century is a bit of a dying art. I wonder when you last sat down and wrote a letter to somebody. I have to say, personally, it's not something I do very often, but it is something that I really love doing. I find it nearly therapeutic. It's something I really enjoy doing. You know, if I have to do something like fill in a form and send it off to somebody, I actually quite enjoy the excuse to do a little covering letter, really, whether I need to do one or not. You know, getting the formatting right, using that more formal language, you know, writing yours faithfully or yours sincerely, depending on whether you named the person, all of those little rules that you're meant to follow. I just love all that. I know it's really sad, but I do. But over time, the way we communicate with people changes. As much as I enjoy all that formal stuff, far more often today, those forms are emailed off with little more than the words, see attached file along with it. And actually, if I'm sending something to someone I know, I'm more likely to send it on WhatsApp or something like that with an even more informal message. I think I had to send a file to Marty a couple of days ago and the, the little message just said, here it is. The way we communicate changes but there are all these little sort of unwritten rules about how we do it, depending on you know, who we're writing to and what the, what the medium is that we're writing in. We kind of have these unwritten rules. Maybe it might be a text filled with those kind of text abbreviations, or it might be something more formal in a letter. And back in the first century when James wrote, it's probably the earliest letter that we have in the Bible, maybe only written 10 or 15 years after Jesus rode, rose from the dead. There were lots of unwritten rules about these things. And as one of my professors at college put it, the rule was that at the start of the letter, you wrote, from me to you, high five. Now, I know that sounds like something the Chuckle Brothers would do or something, you know, from me to you, from me to you, high five. But that, that is how it was. And we see that in James chapter 1 and verse 1. So it's from James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations in the dispersion, or the, the 12 dispersed tribes scattered among the nations. And his high five is short and sweet. It's one word, greetings. We think that this James is probably the, the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph. It could be the disciple James, the brother of John, but that doesn't seem too likely because he doesn't describe himself as an apostle and the letter doesn't really fit the profile. You know, Jesus said to the apostles, you will be my witnesses. And most of the letters written by these guys testify or at least allude to the fact that they're witnesses, that they're apostles. So it's probably the half-brother of Jesus. And again, that actually makes perfect sense because the letter is incredibly practical. It talks about hardships, gossip, controlling the tongue, favoritism. It deals with day-to-day -day domestic issues. And that would make sense because he saw Jesus grow up. He actually saw him in the household. Remember when Jesus was 12 and got left behind at the temple and everybody was amazed at how well he knew the scriptures? Well, that's who James grew up with and he saw this work out in practical ways in our Lord's life. But there was a time when he wasn't a believer. In John chapter 7, we're told that even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. But something happened somewhere along the way and he is a believer in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection. And we've been going through the book of Acts recently, and, and James seems to be the leader of the church at Jerusalem in Acts 15. That's all the same James, we think. 
So that's who is writing. He's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. In other words, this was a letter that really did the tour of a lot of different churches. It's what we call a general letter. It's applicable to all Christians. It's not like Paul's letters where there are specific issues. Of course, it applies to everybody, but there are specific issues in those churches. This is a letter for all believers. But the fact that he describes them as 12 tribes dispersed would suggest that this is meant to help and encourage Christians, people who are believers. It draws on that Old Testament image of God's people being the dispersed people scattered among the nations. These believers live in cultures that are probably not friendly to Christians. They probably face difficulties for being Christians. And that's why I've chosen James 1 um, for this week and next, because it's a letter really that we can jump into without much need to delve into the context. We don't need to know what was going on in the church in Corinth or Ephesus. We find ourselves like those believers who were waiting to be brought back to Jerusalem of the Old Testament. Well, we, in many respects, we are exiles in this world and we're waiting for the new Jerusalem. That's James, that's who he's writing to, and as I say, he doesn't waste too much time with pleasantries, just one word, greetings. And he launches straight into it with trials and temptations. The passage that we read tonight is all about the testing of our faith, whether it's through difficult circumstances, whether that's through not knowing what to do in certain circumstances, wanting wisdom from God, whether it's through temptation to sin. It's about testing times. And I suppose in all kinds of walks of life, testing is very useful. You know, in my former life as a scientist, testing was certainly very useful. Um, I could have made you a, a chemical compound or a coating on a piece of metal more likely in my case or whatever it was, but it wasn't much use if I just didn't test it out. Otherwise, it was just a piece of metal sitting on a desk. It wasn't any use to anybody until we found out what it did. And to find that out, we had to test it. If you're a driver, you'll know that your car goes through an MOT test and that test is useful if annoying because if you fail, even though that's really rather annoying, well, a fault has been identified and you know how to fix it. And ultimately that keeps you safer because you can drive with some confidence that the car is safe to drive. Testing is useful and James says it is useful to our faith too. Let's read verse two again together. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must f finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Do you follow his logic there? Testing is good, it is useful because it brings about perseverance, and that in turn brings about maturity in faith. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter five. He says, we also boast in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. Trials lead to perseverance. That leads to greater Christian character. It leads to a greater experience in our lives of the hope that we have in Christ or back to how James put, puts it. It makes us more mature and complete. I don't think though that James is saying that we should actively seek out um, to make our life harder for ourselves, to try and grow in our faith. 
He also doesn't say that we face trials and hardships because of a lack of faith. That's important to say too. He's not saying that if we just had a wee bit more faith, if we were just a wee bit more mature, that then we'd have an easier life. He's definitely not saying that. But what he does suggest is that the road to maturity as a Christian is through trials. It's through hardships. I know that doesn't sound like good news, but that's how it is. He doesn't say that it's just one way to maturity. He doesn't say that some will go through trials and others will have it easy to grow in the faith. No, he says we get there through trials and temptations. So much so that he says we should consider it pure joy. Paul says we should love it so much that we boast in it. That's what he says to the Romans. Now, I remember um, when I was growing up, I can think of many influential people in my home church who, who were very faithful and very godly people who taught me lots of useful things in Sunday school and CE and everywhere else. But I remember one of them in particular talking about the difference between joy and happiness as a Christian. You know, happiness is that temporary thing. I eat chocolate, I'm happy. You know, if my team wins a football match, I'm happy for a day or two. But those things only last a short time. But joy, well, it sometimes looks happy, but sometimes it looks sad, but it's always there in the big picture. Things are okay because Jesus has saved us. So underneath it all, we're still happy. And I understood that at the time. Okay, sometimes life is hard, but we never lose the joy of being saved. I get that. But there was always something in me which kind of disagreed with that explanation. You know, it sounded like they were making an excuse for joy. You know, joy is joy, except when it isn't. It's joy, except sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but, but you know, it's still there. And that never sat well with me. And I'm not sure that James actually gives us the opportunity to pick that option. Again, in verse two, he says, consider it pure joy, pure joy, my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds. It literally says, all joy. In other words, 100% joy. Not just, you know, kind of there in the background, whether we're happy or not, whether you're actually happy or whether you're kind of grinning and bearing it. No, pure joy. Think it all joy. And that's difficult for us to get our heads around, isn't it? Especially, I think, maybe in this part of the world. You probably don't know this, but about a month and a half ago, uh, I underwent some minor surgery. Now, I would stress to you that it was very minor, and the operation itself all went to plan. But since then, I've been plagued by a, a number of infections, which are more annoying than anything else. And when I was just kind of getting better, you know, as, as I was just coming up through one of those infections, my children managed to bring COVID home from school. So, you know, we had a really fun time for a couple of weeks. I was sitting there, I couldn't really move. I had an infection, I had a really sore throat. I had COVID and everybody else did too. It's been a really fun time, as you can imagine. And last Sunday night, I was sitting down there and I was thinking to myself, oh, I really don't feel good. And it turned out I had another infection, wonderful. And then onto that, my father-in-law tested positive for COVID last weekend. He was the only one in the family who didn't get it the last time. So that was my childcare out of the way for this week. We were scuppered, Justine's back at work. I also had a day in college on Friday. So when it came for preparing for this sermon, I had Wednesday afternoon and Thursday. 
That was it. And I don't know how much you know about um, preparing sermons, but in my case anyway, it takes longer than that. So I was under pressure for time. I was feeling a bit weak. And then to add insult to injury, as I was returning home from the manse on Wednesday at lunchtime, had a great time at the manse. We sat out in the sun, had our staff meeting. It was wonderful. But halfway up the M2, my car died. To quote my mechanic, smells like something in your clutch has exploded. Great. That's a hefty enough bill. Mum wasn't too well this week either, which is rough. So I came to my Bible on Thursday morning, and I read these words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Really? Now you want me to preach this this week? Pure joy, not just joy in the background, not saying I'm fine when I'm really not, which is what we do all the time, but pure joy. And that's just me. I'm not actually looking for sympathy. I am okay up here. All those things are true, but really at the end of it, I'm okay. I don't know where you are at this evening. Maybe for you, life is a bed of roses, and if that's the case, I am genuinely happy for you. I'm sure life hasn't always been that way, though, and for many of you tonight, life might not be that way just now. There might be financial worries or uncertainty, worry about employment or an issue at work, sickness of yourself or a loved one. Maybe there are other family issues. Maybe you've been bereaved recently or not so recently. Maybe it's a spiritual thing for you. Maybe you're here tonight and you keep losing the fight against temptation and you're discouraged in the faith. And you might be tempted to ask the question, and I certainly was tempted to ask the question, is James really serious about that? Did he really mean it? Was he exaggerating when he says, all joy? Is he taking our struggles seriously or is he making light of them? Well, as we read this little letter of James, I think we see very quickly that he does not make light of our problems. The book is full of real life, kind of rubber hitting the road advice for Christians. And actually he writes it because he does care. He does care about how God's people live. And we know that God takes our trials very seriously. If if you've been around the Bible any length of time, you know that. So I suppose the question is, well, how do we marry those two things together? How can we know pure joy? (laughs) even through the trials of life. Well, to begin, it's, it's a small point, but I think it's an important one. It's more about how we think than how we feel. It's more about how we think than how we feel. The first word in verse two is consider in the NIV, and, and the word literally is think. Think it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials. Think of it as joy. So your experience may not be joy. Your feelings may not be joyful. But mentally, we're, we're meant to remind ourselves, we're to think about it in the big picture as joy. What we're experiencing isn't nice. Of course it's not. When, when somebody who's close to us gets sick or, or, or worse, well, we're not going to be happy about it. That's, that's not joy, and it's not meant to be. But as we consider it, as we think of it, as we process it, when we think what we're going through, or perhaps more likely actually as we look back at it afterwards, we're to think of it 
positively, or we're at least to see it positively. Not that it was rosy, or that we're to look at it through kind of rose-tinted glasses and say, oh, that wasn't really that bad. No, if it was bad, it was bad. But we consider it with pure joy because that was a time when through hardship, we persevered and we matured in Christ. Verses three and four say, you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance or steadfastness must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Trials cause our faith to to grow into maturity. As faith meets trials, the result is perseverance, which builds character and leads leads us to maturity. I suppose at the very, very simplest level, trials show us that our faith is real. Because if we didn't have faith, then it couldn't be tested by trials. If we weren't going through a hard time in life, or if we were going through a hard time in life and our faith wasn't affected, we'd really have to question whether we have faith at all or whether it was just superficial. But if you're here today and your faith is being stretched by events in your life, then, well, Here's a word of encouragement. Your faith is real. One commentator has put it like this. When life seems cruel, when God seems to be silent, or when life's events seem jumbled, if at the end of that day, we can even stumble to our feet and proclaim our belief of God as our Father, then faith has passed its test and progressed towards maturity. I think that's Alec Mateer, but don't quote me on that. Think of it this way. Think about a a young couple who've just fallen in love. No doubt they will believe that they're meant for each other. This belief, though, soon will meet tests as they get to know one another a little bit better. They get to see ugly sides, maybe have arguments. They realize that not all of their likes and dislikes actually match up. They don't automatically blend together. But if they get through those tests, if they're endured, then the early belief that they are meant for one another, well, it does, it becomes cemented. It's a fixed, steady, unchangeable character of life. And so it is in faith. We struggle in life, we we wrestle with the fact that God's ways are not our ways and that our plans are often not his. When we come in that conflict to know him more and more, then our faith can be cemented. I realize that if you're here tonight and you are in the middle of a really hard time, then then that might be hard to see at the moment. It might be, as I say, that you look back on this time through that lens. But the promise from God's word today is that God is working through this to bring you closer to him. So even if you can stumble to your feet at the end of the day, knowing that God is your father, then your faith is growing. So keep trusting. How do we know joy in hard times? Well, it's about our perspective. It's more about how we think about these trials rather than how we feel. It's about our attitude to them, our reflection on them, knowing that leads that it develops perseverance, which leads to maturity. Secondly, then, we have joy because God is with us and gives us wisdom for every situation. He gives us wisdom for every situation. Verse five, it's a wonderful verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. 
This verse, I suppose, could be easily misunderstood. You know, when it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, we, we could focus on the if. You know, James, James isn't suggesting that his audience is actually quite wise, and you know, maybe one or two people might lack a little bit of wisdom. You know, it's not like heading out to the shop and asking if anybody would like something while you're there. When it says, if any of you, it means any of you. In short, it's for everybody, any of you who belong to Jesus. And it's a great assurance, isn't it? God's door always open. But how do we know what to do in every scenario? Wisdom is more than simply knowing a bit of information or, or a bit of advice for a particular scenario. It's a knowledge of God, it, both knowing about him and actually knowing him personally. James talks about wisdom again in this letter, and we won't get there um, this time. He, he talks about it in chapter three, and he says that the wisdom that comes from heaven is pure, peaceful, loving, considerate, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And when I think about that list, the wisdom from above, well, it's like Jesus, isn't it? It's full of mercy, good fruit, pure, peaceful, loving, considerate, impartial, and sincere. And as we, as we look to Jesus, we can ask him for wisdom, firm in the assurance that, that wisdom is there for all who belong to Jesus, for all who will simply come and ask. God's door is always open to give us. It's a joy to know that this wisdom is available to us. It, it really is a source of comfort through hard times. And we know that we have this wisdom if we're in Jesus because in Ephesians 1, we're told that our redemption in Christ was lavished on us by the Father with all wisdom and understanding. Now, I know that all sounds lovely, but you may be sitting down there thinking, yeah, but, but how does that actually happen? You know, I, I come to God and I ask him for wisdom. I ask him what to do in a particular scenario. And, you know, I feel like I don't get anything back. I feel like I don't hear from him. Well, you see, this is where James, I told you, doesn't miss and hit the wall. He knows what we're like. He knows us well. You know, we tend to ask for help. But our sincerity, it might leave something to be lacking. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a tough situation, sometimes prayer isn't the first port of call. I like to try and go it alone a little bit first. I like to try and at least maybe sort out some of the problem before I come to God. I like to make it look like, Lord, I've, I've really tried and now I'm really stuck. I might ask God for help with part of it, but not all of that. We can be like that, can't we? We look for a bit of help from him so that we can get back to doing things ourselves. We keep a door open for the world. James says that when we do this, though, we're like a wave of the sea blown about by the wind. He says that we're double-minded and shouldn't expect to receive anything. Maybe that's painful to hear. But we need to ask in faith and be committed. In other words, we need to come, yes, just as we are, but we need to pour out everything to him, not just part of the situation to God. We need to try to look at the situation, the whole situation, through a biblical lens. What does the Bible say about it? What does God say about it? What have other believers gone through in the Bible? How have they related to God when they haven't been sure what to do or when they've been suffering? And when we trust enough to 
actually do that, to really do that, to surrender our own thoughts on the issue, to say, Lord, whatever you teach in your word, no strings attached, no, that is what I'm going to do, even if it goes against my instincts, then we get wisdom from God for sure. It really is for everyone, but we can't be double-minded about it. We can't be selfish as we come to God asking for wisdom. We need to be submissive. Verses 9 to 11 give an illustration of, of a poor brother who can take pride in that position and a rich brother whose wealth will pass away like a flower. Simply put, God's wisdom shows us what's really important. Earthly things that the poor brother might you know, really strive after and want in his life, and the rich brother, well, he might cling to them. He already has them. In the end, those things will pass away. God's wisdom will show us whatever our circumstance, what is important in life. And this leads to the third reason that we have to be joyful during trials. And that is that our destination at the end of life, at the end of our trials, is eternal life. Verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. We are tempted, even as we read those words, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials. We think trials are obstacles. We think they're things that are in our way, they're, they're tests for our faith, that they're stumbling blocks to spiritual growth, things we need to get past, things that if we got past, we would really show ourselves to God and become mature. You know, if we got past those things, well, sure, I'd get back on track with, with devotions and prayer and whatever, but this isn't God's way. One person has put it like this. He said that trials are not unnatural things, not obstacles to spiritual growth. They are God's appointed way forward. I wonder how many of us approach life with that mindset that trials are God's appointed way forward. And the prize at the end of that for perseverance is eternal life with no more trials or sickness or tears. And that really is hope and joy. Finally then, at, at the end of this passage, James shifts attention to one particular trial and that trial is temptation and sin. I think he probably focuses on this in particular because wherever we come from, whatever um, our background in life, we will go through this one. We read in verse 13 onwards, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I told you he doesn't beat around the bush. Temptation truly is the greatest trial that we face. But we like to deflect the blame, don't we? Sure, it's the devil. He tempts me. It's his fault. Now, if you were here this morning, you, you will have heard Marty say that when we sin, Generally, it's for two reasons. One is reasons. One is because of the evil desires within us, and the other is because we are tempted by the devil. And that, that's absolutely true. I entirely agree. Satan does tempt us, but it's only tempting because of our own evil desires in the first place. Left to our own devices, those desires would lead to sin and then death. So we sin, yes, because of our own evil desires or because we're tempted but we're only tempted because of our own evil desires. That's what James is saying. We, we can't say 
God is testing us, God is tempting us because he doesn't tempt anyone, nor is he tempted by anyone. But the reality of our own hearts when we live in these earthly bodies is that we have evil desires and intentions. The problem is within ourselves as well as without. It's not really an option for a Christian to say, well, do you know, yes, I sinned, but, but it was the devil's fault. You know, he, he tempted me. Yes, he certainly did tempt you. Yes, that was part of the problem. Yes, that is a big spiritual battle. We thought about that this morning. But the problem's within ourselves. That's what James says. Each one is led away, dragged away, and enticed by, the own, by his own evil desires. But... Praise the Lord that we're not left to our own to face it because God has intervened in Jesus. Verses, verse 16 onward says this, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Do you see that? He chose to give us birth. In Jesus, when we're born again, we receive new life. Now that's, that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? It's not something we instigated. It's something that God chose to do. We couldn't save ourselves. We are enticed by our own desires, which lead us to sin, and the consequence of sin is death. But God chose something different for those who trust in Christ. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And that idea of, of first fruits comes from the Old Testament where, where the first of any harvest was to be given to God. He chose to give us new birth so that we could belong not to the sinful world, not to the devil, but to him. Just like those first fruits, we instead have life with him. And if God has stepped in in mercy to save us from that greatest trial of all, the trial which leads to death, then how much more can we have confidence that he'll help us through all of our struggles, whatever those might be? I have said this already, but I don't know what you're facing in life at the moment. For some of you, I might have some idea. For some of you, I have no idea. Whatever heartbreak, whatever worry, anxiety, uncertainty, whatever pain, whatever difficulty, grief. But take comfort today that God knows about your pain. His word tells us that in this world we will have trouble, but Jesus has overcome the world and all it can throw at us. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus, in dying to pay the price of our sin, has brought us back to God so that even in the really hard, dark places, we have new life. We have new birth. He is with us. He is working in us to help us grow. He's leading us and he's guiding us and navigating us through those times to that final destination where we will live with him forever, made perfectly like him. And as Psalm 30 puts it, there may be pain in the night, but joy will come in the morning. Let's join together to pray. Our God and our Father, again, we come as thankful people 
that you have given us your word and that it leads and it directs us in every season of life, whether that season is a season of obvious joy or whether we face trials of many, many kinds. And so, Lord, we thank you. Although we find these trials difficult and hard, Lord, although we struggle, we thank you that in them you're teaching us. You're leading us and guiding us so that we can persevere and so that we can come to maturity lacking nothing. Lord, ultimately we long for the new world when we have stood the test of time and we are crowned with eternal life. But Lord, in the here and now, again, we just come to you and sit at your feet and we offer to you those things that we can't do, the things, the situations in which we do not know what to do. And Lord, we trust that as we cast our burdens on you, you will strengthen us and increase our love for you and our joy in our salvation. So be it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.